presentation by Taylor Fragon Capital Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of, or as a substitute for, personalized investment advice from Taylor Fragon or any other investment professional of your choosing. Please see additional important disclosure at the end of this presentation. A copy of Taylor Fragon's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at www.taylorfragon.com. Welcome to the Long Only Podcast. This is Doug. Jerry. Jerry, how's it going? Good. We are just seconds away from Jerry having thrown up his hands, literally thrown up his hands as he said. The hands are thrown up. As he decided to talk about a topic. And Jerry went and then you also cut yourself. I cut myself because there's his tree in the middle of the room that has a sharp edge to the pot that it's in. And I am, I am bleeding. <laughs> well, we're, we're trying to do noise dampening, so it's okay. We'll see if that works out, but you threw up your hands and you said, let's go ahead and talk about it. So we're going to talk about today, public versus private money or public versus private investing. It's not all the same. The private investing isn't all the same. Let me clarify investing in public companies versus investing in private companies. Oh, I thought you might keeping your investments private. Yeah. So no, uh, that was just an awful, that wasn't even, that wasn't even a bad joke. It was not a legible or an understandable statement. Do you want to rephrase that? No, it was a bad joke. It wasn't even, it wasn't like it was going nowhere. Okay. Then forget it. Okay. But we're talking about making. Doug is a former. Underline former. Um, So we're going to talk about public investments, investing in public companies companies versus investing in non-public companies, AKA private companies. And what are some of the differences? <laughs> Excuse me. We need a cough button. <laughs> feels better. What are some of the differences? Uh, and what are some of the benefits and costs? And uh, I mean, right now, I think the biggest benefit to private investing is simply in this day and age or in this market, not having to deal with those daily price fluctuations. You can focus on the business. This is true. But I must say that in the current environment, there are extreme opportunities, and especially small and micro-cap public companies, um, because they're being thrown out with the trash for no, no fundamental reasons, really. The fundamental reason is the Fed has raised interest rates and inflation has reared its ugly head again for the first time in a big way in 40, 50 years, whatever. Um, values are being artificially suppressed by the Fed's actions, which they were late to the curve. They're going to be late to the uncurve. Um, we don't want to talk about the Fed. Doug has forbidden me from speaking about the Fed anymore. I will fire you, Jerry. He's going to fire me if I make it, if I use that word. The Fed is a this this firm a will be Taylor Connolly in just a matter of minutes. If yes. you say instead of Taylor forgot. Okay, I'm going to stop. Stop talking about the Fed. But, I mean, you can't not talk about it given the fact that it is it is significant with respect to valuations of public companies. But, yes. Your That's not point, us complaining. It's the reality we're in. It is the reality. Yes. It is reality that we're, that we're dealing with. And, uh, you know, that being said, public – okay. So, on a day-to-day basis, we are seeing and, – and if I may just add a real-life example today of one of our companies – which two days ago traded on like 20 times normal volume and was down 25% in one trading day. Small company, about, uh, well, started the day at about a $400 million market value, 
finished the day at about a $300 million market value, obviously. Surely there was some bad breaking news that precipitated all this, right, Jerry? There was no news. No, no news, good news, no news, bad news, no news. Well, the companies, the the day before, okay, the day before the company did announce a transition of the CFO, was that enough to take 25% off of the stock? No. Um, But that way, I actually think it might have been two days before this happened. Today, two days later, similarly, in fact, even larger volume, the stock is up 27%. Did they find a new CFO? Uh, no, there was no, there literally was no news in any way, shape or form today. The only news is still the news that came out now five days ago about the CFO leaving. And, and, and you know, look, there are reasons why in, in a company, when the CFO leaves, that could cause some you know questions, but this is not, I, I really don't believe this is what's, what's happening. So that that's the kind of example of the sort of volatility that one has to deal with. Now, in that does create opportunity. But when you're stock, talking about smaller companies, and we've given this example before, where we thought we, you know, we, we would see great opportunity in a company that's getting hammered. Um, I think this the, the last really incredible examples were back in uh, the COVID era, when in the in the downturn, right when COVID was hitting, and we were trying to buy companies that were down like twenty and thirty percent, and traders are saying there's no shares to buy. And we're like wait a minute, we're trying to buy on a day where it looks like obviously everybody's selling. You would think there'd be plenty to buy. No, there isn't. So what, and, and I think we gave the example of when we got done buying what we wanted to do, the stock had recovered to almost being even for the day. And, and you know, we're no massive, big, giant fund out that, that can necessarily move even small companies. But that's the level of liquidity, liquidity or lack thereof that you're dealing with sometimes in these smaller names. All right, that being said, it's important for investors to realize that you cannot act on those things uh, other than as we would try and do on occasion in both directions, take advantage of either scaling something back or buying more or buying for the first time when it's down, scaling back when it's up. Um, because, But you can't in general act on that, certainly not on a day-to-day basis. You're only buying because you're making a long-term investment decision. You're only selling because you're just rebalancing uh, your portfolio, unless of course you're selling completely out. Uh, because there's something fundamentally wrong with the business or something has happened in the business or it's gotten to a point where it's so large it can't grow the way you want it to grow anymore. I mean, those are all the reasons that are take that take years for us from the time when we first make a purchase before we would ever make that decision. Um, and it's been the case for us actually where years has been, you know, more than a decade, more than two decades. Um, usually when it gets to that point, we've done very, 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 very well. So... Um, that that's that's the definition of what we're looking for. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's public companies. This is the frustration. People having to see that every day. Best thing to do is ignore it because it is really noise. It is noise on any given day. You know, on average, less than one percent of shareholders are determining what the value of a company is. Flipping that to the private market, it's a lot more like real estate. People view real estate. Um, as if the market's not so great, eh, you know, I, I own this property. The market's not so great. I was thinking maybe I'd sell it, but I'll wait six months and see what the market's like. And they don't even think about it maybe for six months, a year. If more people would approach public trading that or public stock market investing, public market investing that way, I think we'd all be a lot better off. They don't. 
private company investment investing does afford you that. Now the trade-off is you don't have liquidity um, in, in most cases, especially the younger the company is. And if we think in terms of private company investing, let's say early, early in the stage of a company's life cycle, uh, the investor will call a venture capitalist. It's a venture capital investment. You're venturing into something that you have no, sometimes it's only a, an idea, a science project has absolutely no revenue, maybe years from any chance of revenue. So you're making a very, very long-term and high-risk commitment. As the company moves along its life cycle as a private company, and let's say now it's generating some revenue, uh, it's, it's, it not only does, is it not a science project anymore, it's generating revenue. Um, sometimes it's not generating revenue, but it's no longer a science project. It's now a viable product that they're ready to go out there and start selling. They're getting into where it's later stage and and it may still be private, but the risk has obviously gone down because they've proven they've got a product. If they are generating revenue, they've proven that they can sell it. Then the next phase is, can they sell it profitably? And sometimes, in fact, most of the times scale comes into the equation at that point. And so, you know, the, the more kind of the more, the more they can sell, the more effectively they can produce and thus their cost to produce goes down. Um, I'm being very generalized. Each each business is in each industry and what have you has its different nuances, but th- these are general assumptions. So um, there, when you're later stage, you can see a clearer path to where there may be liquidity events, where there's the possibility that could be acquired. You can start putting some numbers to what might be the value of the company that's really a lot more than what is really, a you know, um, a wild guess when you're in the venture mode, the venture capital mode, trying to determine what something is worth. Uh, obviously, it's if it's a successful company, it's going to be worth a whole lot more. Or even let's say if it was a successful science project, now they're producing it, it's a, it's going to be worth a whole lot more than it was when it was first in, uh, invested in, at least as a general rule of thumb. So those are the, the trade-offs are that you can you, you you truly can approach it as a long-term investment. You have to approach it as a long-term investment because it's not trading every day for you to look at every second what the value is. That's a good thing. In today's world, uh, because of the the what I will call dysfunction in the public markets, there has been for sure some carry-through or some overlap. Uh, that's the wrong word. Let's say carry-through to the private markets where values of the private market of private market companies do eventually be affected by what's happening in the public markets. If the public markets are terrible, if the initial public offering market, in other words, companies trying to go public on and now trade on public exchanges is terrible as it has been, you know, the better part of a, you know, two years almost now, um, you know, then it's, it's, it, that will have its effects on private market valuations as to what, especially later stage companies can expect to garner in the market for either an acquisition where somebody comes and buys them or going public. So where, where does that leave the typical investor? It's unfortunate that, you know, up until more recently, it's been hard for small investors to make investments in private companies there are these, you know, crowdfunding type of options now that are a little bit more favorable that will allow smaller investors to get in. But it, particularly in real estate, that I've seen. Well, is that it's also in companies. You've seen so, in companies yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but it, but it's it's tricky, and, and it's not something that I, that we are are necessarily interested in. Um, 
promoting for most investors, even though it's it's unfortunate for the fact that a lot of the growth in companies happens before they ever get public. And that's happening more now. And it has been in the last 20 years. It ties into that 8,000 to 4,000 problem company, a problem company problem we've talked about where companies, 8,000 public companies in 2020 to you know, 4,000 in 2018. Um, that's improved a little bit with the more recent IPOs that have come out, which are, which are all, not all, but a lot of them are underwater. A significant portion of them are underwater. And that's where there's opportunities right now in public microcap companies. So a lot of information, a lot of, of, of terminology here, but you know, public versus private. I, I think what's happening today, and it and, it, and it's almost by necessity, when you've gone from eight thousand to say five thousand now companies, it's still much less than it was in twenty twenty. The average investor has to be willing to look at private company investing, and yes, it has a high degree of illiquidity, and therefore often is perceived as having a lot of risk. But the thing is, is look, if you're a long, if you're truly a long-term investor, one of the negatives of the public markets is you can naturally get sucked into emotional decisions based on whatever nonsense is happening in the market on any given day. So the, the way I look at it, and it's one of the reasons why we do both, is that there you can somewhat divorce yourself from those day-to-day issues when it comes to private company investing. Yeah, I got off of a call this morning with one of our private companies. Um, hadn't really done any you know work with them since the last quarterly update that they gave. Actually, it was almost six months ago now. Um, and you know, because there's not a lot we can do in that six months. They're still private. They're cooking away at what it is they're trying to do. They had some hiccups on getting their product out at the last uh, last update. Now they're roaring getting the product out they fixed whatever production issues there were um since a company with extraordinary potential i will tell you that there's no way that that company would be being valued for what it's worth if it were trading in the public markets at the moment it just wouldn't be it would it would be an extreme value and as high or low like it'd be too low be too low be too low and as most private companies today are doing they're all of them need money if they aren't generating enough to to be profitable or to at least be cash flow break even. And so what are they doing? They're not raising money at any kind of valuation. They're doing convertible notes and things like that that don't force a, a, a pricing of what the company is truly worth because they know, and this is where the effect of public market being not very favorable it, it negatively does flow into the private markets because these these companies know they would get terrible valuations. So we're not going to raise money. We're not going to dilute our shareholders by raising money at terrible valuations. So they'll do these convertibles. There's some attraction to them for the people that will invest in the convertibles. Maybe they'll get some discounts off of whatever the next valuation round is. And I expect in the next two years or three years, as we we get out of this malaise of the higher interest rate, higher inflation paranoia, um, which, by the way, it's these small public and private companies that are innovating that will provide the growth to the economy that we need to bring inflation down. Okay, we need to suck up that money. You need to get that money into the productive part of the economy. And that will take care of inflation will take care of itself uh, with with good growth. That's, you know, there, there's other there's other obviously there's other nuances to it with respect to how just how much money is the Fed throwing out there. But I think that, you know, right now they're tightening um, what was a ridiculous loosening during COVID. And 
And they were late to the game to Titan, by the way. I said that already. But th- again, this is that's all noise. That's noise that does not really have much to do. If you were to talk to any one of these companies that are on the private side that we're working with, you know, how much does Fed policy affect you? They, they'd all be saying the same thing that I am. As, as far as our business, almost nothing. As far as what it's doing to mess up our ability to raise money, a lot. Um, so... Which eventually does affect the business. Which eventually, yes. it, which eventually can affect the business for sure. Uh, obviously, if they can't get funding, they'll go they'll go under. Um, and and I, if, if we take the big step back now and, and and look a little bit at the big picture and what we've talked about eight thousand to four thousand, why has that happened? Because there has been a gross misallocation of capital for twenty years, more than twenty years since dot com. There's been a gross misallocation of capital. Money has flowed in places that it shouldn't have. Massive companies were continuing to get more and more and more and more and more money. And there's a few big giant companies left at the top. Uh, and a lot of great innovative companies have, have, have been struggling on the vine. Some have gone, compl- a lot have gone completely away. Um, you know, and I would say any, any companies that have gone through this last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, 20 years and are still going, they they probably have really good stories because and are really good businesses because they've been able to live through a period of time where where building a new business was extremely tough and yet I will emphasize one more time we have to have new business formation we have to have innovation happening in a in a free enterprise co- economy or it doesn't work and there has to be the willingness to take risk I agree. I, I stumped Doug. Well, the let me just throw out a couple of things that not really rebuttals in any form, but random thoughts. What we're seeing is that private capital, private equity, uh, investing in private companies, it's got certain features. And when I'm looking across public, private companies, and real estate, it seems to me and I'm developing this thesis as I speak, but I was I've been thinking about it as you as you as you were talking. Liquidity oftentimes is a big driver of rate of return. It seems to me a lot of times when people kind of throw liquidity and and use liquidity and risk interchangeably, I think or almost they they talk about risk when they're really thinking about liquidity. That's what I think. I think they conflate the terms. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have enough money, you can keep going on and on and on and on and on. The risk is mitigated, but there, there's a, there's a, there's a downside to having too much money in a private company too, a, a, an upstart company. Cause, and, and I, I would argue that that's part of the whole misallocation of capital that's happening. Some of these companies just got too much money and they were hiring too many people and paying too big a wages to these people and they weren't producing. But when I'm talking, but when I'm, what I mean is that when you have someone who's investing in a company, oftentimes part of what they, Part of what they see as a risk is they're thinking, okay, how easily can I get my money out of it when I oh. want to get my money out of oh, it? Oh, I see. Liquidity in that liquidity form. to them. Yeah, mean. liquidity to them. Absolutely, and that's often totally agree. That's often what is considered to be risk by a shareholder. And the reality is, you know, it kind of gets to why do people fear? downturns in the market. I mean, it's emotionally, I mean, even those of us that have been looking at this for almost four decades and as a professional, yeah, you can't help but 
eventually, occasionally having the emotion come into it. And the, the difference between an amateur and a professional is we're able to then immediately catch what it is that we're doing, turn that part of our brain off and turn the, the intellectual part of the brain on that is the professional part of the brain that knows what you have, to, how you have to act. It's yeah. It doesn't like mean the, you're not affected. It doesn't mean you're not affected, but you know how to act in a professional way. It's like, you know, the, the emergency room doc is, you know, everything's flying all over the place, but, and there's all kinds of emotion and, and chaos going on, but they're able to focus on the job that they need to do to save that life. It's the same thing in, in money management, maybe not quite as extreme, but it's the same thing. There are times when you feel someone's like someone's got a high opinion of yeah, his job. Well, but there's times <laughs> when you do feel like an emergency room doc when things are all hitting yep. the fan. So we need a defibrillator in here. So. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, I, I, but you're right. A lot of people equate that with risk, and the and, and the reality is, is more often than not, that is not what's going on with the companies, especially if they've been at, been at it for a while. And the the investor needs to just kind of set back and realize that you know this still just needs to cook. Of course, none, no money should ever be put in. Heck, even the public markets that is needed anytime you know within a number of you know. Low single digit years for sure, and people constantly disobey that rule, and they that's why they panic do. and sell out during. And they constantly COVID. do, and that's how they get in trouble. The flip side of that is the desire to have just this, the you know, when the fear really kicks in to get this complete liquidity, complete available cash, and that is actually probably the riskiest thing that they could do from the standpoint of the long term effect that it will have on their financial lives. So you know, it's super important to make sure you plan properly. We say that like it's easy. And sometimes it's not, but that is really important so that you're never, never put yourself in a position, at least try and never put yourself in a position that you're going to, that you're going to, that you would be having to liquidate something at, at a bad time. Try and treat it like you would the real estate where, oh, I'd like to go sell this property. Let's go see what's the market. Oh, the market's terrible, right? Okay. We'll wait a year. That's, that's it's it's easy for, for some reason it's easy for people to think about real estate like that it's hard for them to think about other equity type investments like that which real estate is an equity type of investment and by the way real estate cannot function without a vibrant live growing innovating economy of businesses well as we're seeing as we are seeing as we're seeing because the the drying up of of um the economy has certainly affected real estate. So there one depends on the other. And I guess what I would say is encourage people to look at the differences between investing in public and private companies and lean into the advantages because oftentimes people see these public companies and private companies, excuse me. And they, they see, Oh, it's not, it's not liquid. It's not easy to get your money in and out. It's not easy to make an investment. You've got to have a higher net worth because there's, there's more perceived risk. And they want to go and they want to try to take an investment like a, a, like an investment in a private company and make it act more like a public investment. There's that tendency to do that. And that's why the higher returns lie with those, with those private investments, that perception of risk, the problems of getting your money out. And you do occasionally have opportunities like you do now. It's not very often, but what we've done here is in the current environment is we've created an opportunity it's one of the reasons why we're out raising $200 million to do a second private investment fund right now is because there are great opportunities for what are some companies that are trading or are act, the values of which are as if they were venture capital, but they have viable businesses already and they're already public. And I think the potential for those kinds of returns are out there in public companies. 
So there, there, you need to, I think, trying to get a combination of both. And it's hard for the small investor because you're right. There's these accredited investor rules, which are ridiculous, that require, uh, you know, you have to have a certain amount of net worth and income to be able to participate in private companies. Again, there are some things that have happened to help alleviate that, but they were weak. They were weak things. And they're not, they're not, they're not good enough. They've got, they've got, and we won't get into them because it's, it can get complicated, but they have too many, you know, bells and whistles attached or, and, and, you know, it's, 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 it's still not easy. All right. All right. So anything else to add in closing? Yeah. I think we can leave that one on that at that. All right. Well, in the meantime, look us up on the internet, taylorforgone.com, rate us on iTunes, and Instagram is taylorforgone.invest. Of course, you can also send us an email, long only at taylorforgone.com. Until next week, I'm Doug. I'm Gary. Thanks for joining us on the Long Only Podcast. Bye now.